Thanks for joining us at Mountainside, anywhere. We're praying that God will use this teaching to reveal himself to you in his word. Through it, may you see him more clearly, know him more fully, and trust him more deeply. As always, we are here to serve. Please reach out through mountainside.online if there's a specific way we can come alongside to pray, help, or encourage throughout the week. Let's join Pastor Dave now as he continues our study in the book of Mark. Pray for Pastor Lyle later this morning, I guess this afternoon for us. He's preaching this morning at 10 in Hawaii, so that's like 4 in the afternoon. Hard to pray for somebody suffering in Hawaii, right? <laughs> so anyway, but if you think about it, set your alarm, pray for him at 4. Um, when I re- used to read about the Sea of Galilee, my big lake experience was Lake Michigan, and uh, every summer... For all of my life, we would spend um, at least a week or two in Lake Michigan, on Lake Michigan. And then my grandfather died. My grandmother bought a cottage in this little village. And we started spending a month before we moved to Scroon Lake. So about 1970, when I was 13, we had a sailboat. And so I spent a lot of times out on this little sailboat sailing around on the lake. And my best friend came up for one of the weeks to spend with me. And I just always thought, you can't see across Lake Michigan. And we were kind of down in the bottom of it. But I bet if you sailed far enough out, you could see the skyline of Chicago. So I posed this to my friend. Now, remember, these are 13-year-old minds. Um, And I said, you know, we probably could see the bottom of the lake the whole time. And I don't know that we'll get out of sight of this side. So we got in the boat, nice windy day, and off we went. And uh, we got to the place where the shore where my mom was sitting was about, you know, about that big. And we could still see the bottom of the lake, but we still couldn't see the skyscrapers. So we're tooling along. We hear this motor and uh, see this boat coming out towards us. Now, my mom did not like the water. Uh, she had a, uh, an incident when she was a child, and so she really avoided the water. And this boat came out and started to circle us. And there in the back of the boat was my mom with a, one of those big life jackets on. I can't hear anything she's saying, but she's doing <laughs> this. So I never got to... And I, it still is a thing that if I went back to the place, I still would love to go out and see if I could go out far enough to see the skyscrapers because we were right across from Chicago. So when I would read these stories in the New Testament of Jesus crossed to the other side, like we're going to see in Mark chapter 5, or that they would watch him go and they would follow him, I'd be thinking, how in the world could you follow him? Um, Lake Michigan It's 307 miles long and 118 miles wide. Now, where I was going to go across was only about 40. Um, But uh, the Sea of Galilee is 33 miles long and 8 miles wide. In fact, this picture that you see is from my hotel room in Tiberias. So we're actually looking where Jesus left from. And where he went to, I didn't mean to take the picture that I would use this in a message, but you could see where the lake dips around to the back. But you can see all the way across. And so everything about the storms and all of these things took place in this lake 
where no matter where you are, you can see all the shoreline. Um, and so it always, that was the first thing that really struck me when I went to Israel was how small the Sea of Galilee was. It's even got a big name. Um, so one time, too, and these storms would come in, and that's uh, the end of chapter 4 is Jesus calming the storm, and I was uh, leading a group of pastors, and we got to the Sea of Galilee for the boat ride, and they said, well, we can't do it. It's too, it's too rough out there. And we were with 40 pastors, and I said, hey, we're pastors. We would love to be on a storm in the Sea of Galilee, and everybody's like, mm, no. So... Maybe that's why God's never allowed me to really have a boat for very long. <laughs> so Jesus goes to the other side and he gets out of the boat. And in Luke chapter uh, 5, when Jesus climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit, most translations will say unclean. The New Living Translation uses the word evil, which is probably clearer because if you're not familiar with Old Testament clean and unclean, uh, might be confusing, but anyway, evil spirit came out from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves, could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves and the hills, howling, cutting himself with sharp stones. Can you even comprehend the horror of this? Imagine living in this vicinity with this madman, uh, naked, howling, cutting himself so bloody. Um, and, and guys would go out and wrestle him maybe to the ground and chain him up and he would snap the chains. Supernatural strength. I mean, if you didn't know, you would think this was some kind of a filming of a horror movie or something. It's unimaginable. Uh, from a distance, the evil spirits begin to recognize the boat coming in, recognize the God-man. When Jesus, verse 6, was some distance away, the man saw him, ran to meet him, and bowed low before him. It's interesting, verse 8 actually comes before verse 7. Just, just the idea that uh, um, you know, Jesus is going to say something. But verse 7 says, uh, with a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus? Son of the Most High. You're, you recognize that often in the episodes with demons, they recognize who Jesus is the God-man, the, the Son of the Most High. In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. And so here is God in the flesh, creator of heaven and earth, and in his presence is this man possessed by demons. Now, in the parallel translation, I mean the parallel story in Matthew 8, which is describing the same thing, Matthew adds, one phrase I want you to see, have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? In other words, the demons understand that God has a plan for them, and it's not a good one, and uh, they're saying, so you're going to torture us? So they're, they're just, can you imagine these voices screaming out, don't torture us? 
Uh, are you going to torture us before our time? Just so you understand what their time is, uh, their stages of judgment, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says that God did not even spare the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell in gloomy pits of darkness where they're being held until the day of judgment. There are some that are already in chains, in hell, waiting judgment. Also tells us in Revelation that during the millennium, the reign of, of Christ, um, that Satan will be chained and will not be allowed to, to uh, confuse the nations for a thousand years during that time. We're gonna sp- I'm going to speak on that in a, in a while. We're just kind of waiting for a time to put two weeks together and give me some time to put, put that important message together. But ultimately, Matthew chapter, five, chapter 25, verse 41 says, Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. And at Revelation 20, as, the, as history is coming to a conclusion, it says, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, Joining the beast and the false prophet, there they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so uh, there is judgment and eternal damnation waiting for them, and they understand this. And so they're pleading with Jesus not to send them there now. And it would appear, though the Bible doesn't explicitly say, that, that a demon must somehow be in resident in a body to cause trouble uh, because they seem very eager to find a place uh, to be troublesome, so to speak. So verse 8, for Jesus had already said to the spirit, come out of the man, you evil spirit. So verse 9, we pick up after they have said, he says, what is your name? And they replied, my name is Legion. It's interesting that Mark uses the singular spirit and then the name, my name, not our name, my name is Legion, and because there are many of us inside. And so um, it's not entirely clear whether it's the leader speaking, but Legion would be a known term. Roman Legion would have been 6,000 soldiers. And so there would be thousands of demons in this man. Again, you know, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of information uh, to build, uh, build a theology about this. So there's, it's again and again, don't send us to some distant place. Th- think of, of just this begging, please don't, and all of these voices. And then let us go into the pigs. They're in the Gentile region. So uh, there would be a pig farmer, and apparently there was a couple thousand pigs. And so they said, let us enter them. Now, it's not that they found a soft spot in Jesus' heart for them. I mean, they are the enemy. I mean, they have been torturing this man for, his, uh, for who knows how long. And so to display his power, I believe Jesus says, okay, go in the pigs. They go in the pigs. And if they thought that was going to be a pleasant thing, it wasn't. The pigs run and plunge down into the hillside and drowned in the water. Just, just imagine the scene. There are people that are seeing this. This man is crying out, and he's submissive. He's bowed before 
this person, and the man sa- the person says, who are you? And he says, we are, you know, we're legion. Please don't send us away. And then they go into the pigs, and the pigs run into the sea. So this is, this is Jesus' 13th miracle. If you were to read the Gospels in chronological order, there are 37 miracles of Jesus, and this is number 13. So if you stop and think about the first miracle of turning water into wine, Jesus is showing his power over nature. He heals many people, his power over sickness. He's cast out many demons, his power over the demonic realm. And so we keep seeing this over. He's just calmed the sea from a storm. Again, power over nature. He has raised people from the dead already, raised the widow's son, power over death. And so we see that Jesus has authority over nature, over sickness, over evil, over death. And so for us as children of God to recognize that our Father in heaven, that Jesus at his right hand, and that God the Holy Spirit in us has the authority to push back and stop anything that comes into our life that is unwanted. Um, a stark reality, when my, when my little brother was four with leukemia, um, on the way to Albany Med to have a spinal uh, tap, which they had to do regularly, where they had to go into his spine and insert liquid. It was extremely painful medicine. Um, my mom started to cry. Just, I, you know, I, it's so hard to face this. And Darren put his arm around my mom and said, don't worry, mom. Dad and I talked last night, and the needle has to go through God's hand before it goes into my back. Five years old. So, you could say that about everything, right? Everything. Everything comes by, with God's permission. And uh, so, word spreads, verse 14. The herdsmen fleed, fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside and spread the news, and people rushed out to see what was happening. So, you're a citizen of this town. You have, at times in your life, out of curiosity or sport or a dare or going on a trip or having to do business, you have walked in this region and you have heard this man howling. You have maybe seen him. You maybe run from him. This man has terrorized the community. And the crowd, verse 15, gathers around Jesus and they saw the man who was possessed by the legions of demons, he was sitting there, fully clothed, perfectly sane, and now they're really afraid, right? I mean, just imagine, this guy is there, and he's like normal, and he's clothing on, sitting with Jesus. So the sequence, first this chaos, This man out of his mind, naked, cutting himself, breaking chains, howling. Then Jesus comes and these demons are screaming, begging for mercy. They go into these pigs and 2,000 pigs rush into into the sea. And people rush out to see what this is all about. And they arrive at a perfectly normal scene. 
with a guy just, just like they're sharing some bread, cheese, and coffee. I don't know what they drank. I know they had cheese, and I know they had bread. So, so what would their response be? In the face of this astounding miracle, the horror of this man's presence in their life, sitting totally in his right mind and clothed. What is their reaction? They want Jesus to leave. Now, is that surprising? I mean, you know, in John chapter 4, when Jesus comes to the town where the the woman at the well, and she had told her friends they wanted Jesus to say. And so we see this reaction in different ways. They wanted Jesus to leave. Please go away. We don't want you. You're too scary for us. You know, um, this story always breaks my heart. I studied it a little closer this time, and I, and I sort of eased my, my heart. But verse 18 As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. what What a moment that two hours ago I was insane, and now I'm sane. And here is the man, and the people in my town are sending him away. And so he says to Jesus, can I go with you? And it always shocks me that Jesus said no. It it breaks my heart. I mean, there have been times I read this and I actually get choked up thinking about this this man, this tender-hearted man who in his first hours of sanity says to the man who brought sanity into his life, can I go with you? And he says no. And so he says to him, go home to your family. Tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful, how merciful he has been. Jesus is saying, I'm giving you a job to do. Verse 21, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. And I picture that guy just, you know, seeing him go off and not like Lake Michigan. He could see him go all the way across and land there back at Tiberias. And, and now he's supposed to go on and tell people about it. What happened to the guy? This is what, this is what I kind of put together this time that I hadn't before. Is uh, in Mark chapter, chapter 7, we're going to... Uh, see that uh, seven and eight, that Jesus comes back to this area of the 10 towns where this guy was from. This time when Jesus comes back, guess what's there to wait for him? The crowds. It doesn't mention the man, but it mentions the crowds. In fact, the feeding of the 4,000 takes place in this place. So in my mind, you know, speculation, it's not in the scripture, But I picture this guy being right there at the edge of the lake when Jesus comes back and these thousands of people that are waiting that he has told of the miracle of his life and they have put this together. Now this guy is coming here and they're ready for him. In fact, what happens is as Jesus is moving around, the crowds are following him. And after three days, they run out of food. 
And so Jesus says to the disciples again, hey, how are we going to feed them? And they're like, we don't know. I mean, you know, of course we know. Didn't we just do the 5,000? Um, but if we were there, we'd be saying we don't know. Um, and uh, he feeds the 4,000 4, men, so maybe, I don't know, 12,000, 16,000 people. Um, Do you ever think about how long it took him for to break a piece of fish for 16,000 people? Uh, maybe, I don't know, but anyway. <laughs> you don't even have to pay attention to that one. So what do we do with this story? And my plan was... Uh, week before last, that I was going to focus really on the goodbye, that the disciples were going to have to say goodbye too, eventually. And they had a job to do. They couldn't go with Jesus. And then when Brian preached, I realized, I think there's something more here too, because what if this was a parable of our culture? Do you feel like our culture is scary? And uh, seems out of control and threatening. And I mean, picture the culture, this, this community with this guy of the woods. And uh, we have many of the same reactions that the culture does. The challenge is, we know from this story, this guy wasn't the bad guy, right? Now, they thought he was. But then we know he's not. He had a thousand demons in him, a couple thousand or six thousand, whatever. Um, so when we see our culture, when we see the people in our culture that, that cause us to feel threatened and the ideas and all of that, do we see them as the enemy? Or do we see them as captives? 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse Four says, Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the light of the good news. They don't understand the message about the glory of Christ, who is the exact likeness of God. Colossians 1, 13 says, For he rescued us from the domain of darkness, or the kingdom of darkness, and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. You see, the Bible pictures our neighbors and our friends, even our leaders in our culture, as captives, as blinded. Uh, 2 Timothy 2.23 says, Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change these people's mind. They will learn the truth. They'll come to their senses and escape the devil's trap, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. How does that change things when I think about our culture? When I watch a TV show or news or whatever, and, and again, uh, I said it not so long ago, everything that you watch and everything that you listen to, I don't care whether it's a Christian show or a secular show, so much of it is designed to create rage. It, it's always giving you bad news. Now, I, I've included Christian groups in that, Maybe because there's only bad news, some of you will say. But uh, it's an interesting thing. I remember listening to a Christian program every morning until the election of 2018. And that day, it was like, oh, this is not good for me to 
to just hear everything that's wrong in the, in the first 20 minutes of my day. That's just me. But, but it's easy for us to get, become convinced that they're the enemy. In fact, the Bible says that we cannot in our own strength stand up against Satan. Ephesians 6, 10, a final word, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the strategies of the devil. If you do not take the intentional time to work through the truths of Scripture, which is what the spiritual armor is. It's salvation. It's the gospel. It's faith. It's truth. And, and to convince yourself anew of these, you have no chance. Our weapon is the word. Our weapon is the prayer. That's how we stand against the wiles of the devil. So what was the response? Let's move forward with this. I did the parallel. The response of the people, they were, had fear, they had anger, confusion, disbelief, hatred. Kind of the same experience that we have when we listen to the news, when we hear, we go to meetings, you know, board meetings. Now, we're kind of isolated up in here, but we still have the same things, but it's not quite as pervasive maybe as other places, and many of you are visitors from other places. But it's easy for us to be angry, to be confused, that we can't believe this is happening, to hate. And what are our attempts to fix it? One is, get them away from me, is to create distance or chains. Um, I think of, let me put in the idea of rules and law. I'm not against good rules. But we do know that rules don't work, right? Rules do not make a person righteous. You know how we know? We have 39 books that lay out for us that rules don't make people righteous, right? God made the rules of Israel. So there on Mount Sinai, God himself says, here are my rules. And what do we realize? Everyone failed. Everyone fell short. In fact, Paul speaks of the rules as... When I, in Romans 7, when I'm suggesting that the law of God is sinful, of course not. So it's not that the rules are sinful. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. The sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there is no law, sin would not have had that power. And he goes on to describe You see, I, I'm, I'm all for being a part of, of our government. I've, I have voted in every primary and every election, school elections and everything all of my life. But I recognize that that is not going to give us a righteous nation, no matter who's in charge. Do you think people went out and made fun of this guy? And sometimes when we hear the confusion, uh, we begin to feel like if I don't laugh, we may, maybe even laugh or make fun. I remember when I was in college, 
Um, probably wasn't the best choice I could have made, but I skipped classes to go hear Francis Schaeffer in person for a week. I didn't get very good grades that semester. But it was all about culture. How then should we live? This is 1975. And one of the videos was talking about absurdity. The modern art was coming into vogue at that time, modern music. John Cage was at the forefront. As a composer of chaos, he would write music by dripping dots of ink on randomly onto paper or have a wall with two conductors. Um, but his famous 14 minutes of silence, he walks out to the piano in Carnegie Hall, I think it was Carnegie Hall, sits down, closes the piano, starts a stopwatch and sat there. Well, the audience was laughing their head off. And Francis Schaeffer walked out and said, you laughed. He says, if you understood what was happening, you would be crying. And you see, we have to step back from our culture for a minute and recognize the pain in our culture today. You know, there's this sense going on at the same time that, that at one point we're saying, you're free to be and do whatever you want to do. Just be who you are. And what people are finding is that they're not enough. They're not enough. You know, and this, is, this goes all the way back into the 60s, and Schaefer would say even into the 30s. And you can trace this, and I certainly don't have time to do that today. But without something, society helps a little bit of how I fit into the culture, the family. But without God, we're, everyone is adrift. And if we understand that, we start to cry when we see people trying to find fulfillment in things that will never fulfill them. It's that picture, the prophet, of people sit trying to suck the moisture out of a broken water pot, piece of a broken water pot, and sucking out the, the moisture where right over there is springs of living water, flowing water. It's also easy for us to think of ourselves as better. You know, we got it together. We understand. We got it all figured out. And because we have the scriptures, in many ways we do. As soon as I start thinking that way, I remember Luke 18, verse 9. Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee. Remember, Jesus said, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees. So he, he held them up as pretty good examples of law-keeping. Just not there, just so I'm clear. The other was a despised tax collector. Jesus held them up as the perfect description of sinfulness. Okay? Unless your righteousness exceeds these guys, you'll not get into heaven. Um, he uses them as an example of total depravity. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank God that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, and certainly not like that tax collector. And then he goes on to name all the things he does. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of my income. The tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven, and he prayed Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow and saying, Oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. 
And Jesus says it was not the Pharisee that went home justified. It was the tax collector. I can't expect an unbeliever to act like a believer. And even if I gave him a rule book and he tried to follow it or she tried to follow it, it would be failure. You know why I know that? Because I fail. Here's the difference. Here's the absolute stark difference. When an unbeliever sins, they're sinning in according with the nature. When I sin, I sin contrary to my nature. I sin resisting the Holy Spirit. I sin ignoring the scriptures. I sin without reaching out to my community of believers. What's the worst sin in the Bible? Well, the one that God resists is pride. And so I just want to challenge, I challenge myself and that, that we need to see the pain or understand, even if we can't see the pain, we see the arrogance, we recognize that there's pain. The highest value to God is what? What's the number one thing to God? Love. You've heard the law, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. As Jesus was ushering in the new covenant there at the Last Supper, he says to the disciples, I got something that's new in this new thing we're doing. This new covenant is this. Love your neighbor. You've heard it, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, love your enemies. I know people that have taken that to say I have to love my enemies and I love my loved ones, but then the Bible doesn't say anything about this group. Um, the point is, if you, have, if you love your enemies, you love everybody inside. There's nobody outside an enemy, right? In that way, you're acting like two children of your heavenly father. Now listen to this. For he gives sunlight to both the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you're only those who love you, big deal. What reward is that? Even tax collectors do that. They use them. If you're kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. When I do not love, I'm living contrary to my call. And this is not pretending to love. This is not loving with the love of Jesus because I really don't like you. I mean, the Bible speaks about integrity of the heart. I quoted that song, let me see the world, dear Lord, as though I was looking through your eyes. A world of men who don't want you, but a world for which you died. You see, if, if we could catch a new vision or a more clear vision of the pain and the suffering and the hurt of people who are living totally disjointed. I think it's always been the case, but in our cultures, we learn how to hide those things. So, as a parable of our culture, what does Jesus say to us? Can we go with you? He says, no. Go and tell your family and friends. Romans chapter 10, verses 13 through 15 says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord 
will be saved. Oh, but how will they call on him to be saved unless they believe in him? How will they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how will they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go to tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. What was the thing that the demoniac man needed? Jesus. What is the thing that every individual in our culture needs? It's Jesus. You know, I, I remember clearly when I went through this phase, as, and I think I was in the eight or nine years old, and I could not understand in my childish mind how a person could reject the gospel. And I remember thinking, if I could just tell them, if I could just get an audience with the president and tell him about Jesus, I know he would get saved. You know, it just was so clear. It just seemed so simple and so straightforward. And we realized here in the face of all of these miracles, this town says, go. We don't want you around us. You're too frightening. And when we bring the gospel to somebody, we're really presenting to them hope, but it also represents to them a whole new way of life. Most of my evangelism in my life has been across time, and there have been times where I've met a person for dinner or coffee week after week or month after month, and there comes a point in time where they say to me, because I try to end the conversation by saying, where are we with all this? And they say something like this, I recognize, I think the truth of all this, but I also recognize I have to give up control of my life. Well, they're almost there. But that's what that represents. Brian ended his message with a verse that I've quoted many times, but I only quoted the last part. Um, perhaps you were made for such a time as this, Esther 4.14. Um, you can go on to that last slide. I missed the invitation. Oh, that I didn't put it up there. No, I'm sorry. Yep. I put it up, and I took it out this morning thinking I wouldn't need it. Now I'm thinking I would need it. Um, Esther 4.14, if you keep quiet at this time, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place. But you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you are made queen for such a time as this. Here's the point of that passage. God is going to, going to do what God is going to do. And the question is, do you want to be a part of that? Can you imagine the moment for that man when Jesus came back and he stood there, if he knew he was coming, I don't know how it all worked, but in my mind, I picture him standing there and Jesus comes on the shore and there are all these people waiting to meet this guy that changed this guy's life. I mean, he was a part of what God was going to do. There was going to there is there was there's coming a day for the disciples when Jesus says I'm going away, 
where I'm going, you can't come. And he pushed them out into ministry. And they changed the world. So what will your story be? 23 years ago, um, year 2000, Passion One Day, there was an amazing message that was preached to 40,000 college students, Christian college students by John Piper. It's called his Shell Ministry. Shell Ministry. Shell Sermon. So you can look it up if you want to hear it. And he spoke about the fact of a couple of the, the, we live in an age and Reader's Digest had published an article about a couple who had saved their money and had early retirement and they spent their days now cruising on their sailboat and collecting shells. And he, in his book, Don't Waste Your Life, he begins with this idea, this rehearsing this of, you know, coming before God and saying, what do you think of my shells? Um, he said, that's the tragedy. And then he says something like this. The American dream, get rich, retire early, entertain yourself on your riches, is not worth giving your life to. It's a tragedy. It's not what we were created for. It cannot satisfy. He says there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy into it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy into it. Those students now are approaching 50. 23 years ago, they were, so they're in their 40s, maybe some in their 50s. It's interesting because you still see people writing, especially when I started looking for this, I still see people saying, I was there that day, and the impact of that message, what are you going to give your life to? I mean, we all one day are going to stand before the Lord to give an account of our life, but what have we given our life to? It's not about how it's not about whether we led a thousand people to Christ or one, it's whether we were faithful. Because even in the passage, in many passages, it says some water and some plant. Even when Jesus in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, there's planting, there's cultivating, there's watering, and some get the harvest. When I worked in, in Center City, Philadelphia for five years, um, everybody knew I was a believer, I talked about my faith. No one came to the Lord during this five years. Two years after I left to go into ministry, my former boss called and said, if, uh, would you want to uh, come in two days on your day off and we'll pay you really good and you can help us with, a, with an old client. So I talked to the boss and I was way to pay for some schooling. So on Tuesday and Wednesday, I would go into Center City. The first day there, before I even got to my office, two people came up and said, Hey, Dave, I got saved last year. I planted or watered. I wasn't part of the harvest. It was just as exciting. And so what is your story going to be? Let me pray. Father, I pray for myself, most of all. I pray for each person here. Help us to just evaluate our, ourselves. Where we are, what's important to us, where we spend our time, how we navigate the confusing culture of ours. God, help us. 
and to be faithful. Help us to think clear thoughts. Help us to give our lives to serving you. In Jesus' name, amen.